Labor's big Keynesian budget, and the good news is about the EPA. This is The Week on Wednesday. Hello and welcome to The Week on Wednesday. I am your co-host, Ben Davison, and joining me is both a heavy-breathing little puppy named Germanicus, <laughs> who you probably can hear breathing into the microphone because he's decided to put his face so close. But more importantly, my co-host, my wife, your friend, the best-selling author of Q and On and On, a short and shocking history of internet conspiracy cults, global phenomenon, <laughs> that is Van Batum. How are you, Van? I'm all right. I'm okay. I'm very glad that you're home. Yes, I, I was away for a couple of days doing uh, some work in my portfolio career, as we call them, uh, the combination of various activities that I do that somehow manage to cobble together enough to pay our bills and keep this podcast going, which of course is helped by the fact that we do have such a vibrant supporter base whose names you will read out later on. Our I always do. I always do. And, and if I get your name wrong, just send Ben an email and I'll sort it. That's right. And remember, we read out, or I should say Van reads out, because when I try and do it, it is a stumbling, bumbling mess. But Van reads out what you put into those fields. So if you're unhappy with what's read out, uh, do let us know or go in and change your profile. And remember, it is our cadre and Extend the Reach supporters from our Buy Me A Coffee page. That's buymeacoffee.com slash week on Wednesday. You also, of course, get emails for every show along with links and additional content as and when it becomes available. But Van, putting that to one side, I also want to give a shout out uh, to our very good friends over, over at Socially Democratic Dog is now scratching on the floor just to add a bit of mystique to the podcast. We really hope that you feel like you're part of our family whenever you tune in. And in to, to give you that, like, warm, homey feeling, I don't, I don't even want to describe what the dog is doing. I'll let you imagine it. Our good friends over at Social Democratic, <laughs> who are much more professional in their production values than we are, have had their fourth birthday. So congratulations. Happy birthday to you. To Stephen Donnelly and Beck and the whole team. Over Happy there. birthday to you. Uh, of course, for those regular listeners of our show and their show, you'll know that Van and I have appeared on their show. They've appeared on our show. We've done uh, election night coverages together. Uh the more we can build this network and this ecosystem of conversation, of information sharing, uh, the more we can uh, get the message out there. Van, the big story, of course, today is Labor's big Keynesian budget. It is a big Keynesian budget, and it's a very, very exciting time. Because what was announced last night by the Treasurer, Jim Chalmers, is a return to a paradigm, which is, you know, an accepted, understood framework for people who don't throw the word paradigm into sentences all the time, uh, where we are thinking as Australians and making economic policy within a collectivist set of values. That is, we are not stripping back government departments, uh, cutting services and, you know, Im imposing a, a neoliberal framework that says, 
here is some money, just go buy whatever you want. We're not going to provide it for you, the user pays framework. Yeah. We're getting back to really old school Keynesian policy making. And Ben will go into a description of what Keynesianism is in this concept, it's an economic theory that's about shared prosperity. And it recognises that our prosperity is collective, that a big, strong state that employs lots of public servants providing services that make everybody's life better, that's how we get equality. We don't get equality through piles of money and making purchasing decisions. That's what neoliberals think, and 40 years of it has delivered how much equality, Ben? Yeah, made it much, much worse. Yeah, actually it's driven record inequality. What we're getting back to is the framework by which we are equalising our social purchase. It's really exciting. It's a really exciting time. It really is. And I posted this uh, on some social media platforms today that uh, I expected, uh, or I hoped probably more than expected, I hoped for a lot uh, from this really the first budget of this first year of a first-term Labor government, but even my expectations were exceeded. I know that there are some people online who uh, really want to pull a, a dark cloud over this budget on, on the basis of what they didn't get out of it. In some cases, I can understand why they might feel that way uh, because the neoliberal market-based framework has conditioned them to see purely the cash component of what government provides as the be-all and end-all. And so the tripling of the Medicare uh, incentives for bulk billing, which will see millions more people bulk billed, which will reduce the medical costs, particularly for people who are on uh, support payments, Uh, the changes to childcare, which again will benefit people on support payments, uh, the changes and improvements to housing supply, which again will benefit people on support payments, uh, the reduction in the costs of medicine and the ability to access larger supplies of medicine, thus bringing down the total cost as well, uh, again will benefit people on payments. These things are often in the past have been totally overlooked because they're oh, and free TAFE. Free TAFE, which of course reduces the cost of retraining or training, uh, the the ability to access uh, emergency uh, medical at hospitals when you need it because of the investment in urgent care and the investment in Medicare, which again reduces out-of-pocket costs. So all of these add up to what is commonly referred to or used to be commonly referred to when it was commonly discussed, something called the social wage. And the social wage is the underpinning of the welfare state. So in the Keynesian model, you have this social wage component which allows for people to have interactions, uh, to participate not just in a market-based economy. And remember, we've discussed this before on the show. Market-based economy just may, a market is just the transactions that occur between people. That's all a market is, right? It's millions and millions of transactions happening all the time. Government sets the framework through policy around how those transactions occur. 
That's the old market-based economy approach. Morrisonism was 100% trying to move everything into that framework where your capacity to transact determined your worth, your value, your capacity in society. What Jim Chalmers has done and what Albo has done, what Labor has done, really on the back of some work from state governments for some time, I'm talking here about Victoria, Queensland, WA in particular, but also South Australia and now New South Wales, uh, who I notice have introduced a bill to uh, constitutionally enshrine public ownership of uh, water resources in, in New South Wales. It's wonderful. Like it's actually wonderful. They have moved to the Keynesian model, which is to say the social wage, what we can do and deliver as government. Collectively. Collectively, right, through supporting free TAFE, all those things we mentioned before, adds to the quality of life and reduces the cost of living. So rather than give everyone a $500 check, we're going to take $500 off the power bill before you even get it. Right? We're going to work on the supply side to make that happen so you as an individual don't have to worry about how that's going to work. That's the role of government to bring down your power price. Right, So that they've done that. They've worked with states to do that. That's a joint uh, project. But more importantly, or maybe not more importantly, but equally importantly, is the philosophical underpinnings of what a Keynesian budget or a Keynesian economic approach uh, actually mean. Because... In a Keynesian economic model, the thing that was developed during the Great Depression, you put money into the economy, the government puts more money into the economy when economic times are bad. And when I say economic times are bad, I mean unemployment is high, right? That's when economic times are bad. Now, at the moment- Keynesianism, the economic philosophy of John Maynard Keynes, yes. came out of Keynes's experience during the Great Depression. Yes. Where a lot of the, re- like, it is completely extraordinary, given the fact that details of the Depression are quite well established on the record, yeah. that neoliberal philosophy has attempted to either remedy or embrace the negative aspects of the Great Depression at various times by by repeating the mistakes that were made at that time that, of course, drove mass unemployment and poverty everywhere. Yeah. And so Keynesianism was developed in a context that you had a collapse in economic activity and a devaluation of assets and property. In in Germany you had hyperinflation where $1,000 in the morning um, was worth like a dollar at night and these kind of Mm. crazy economic symptoms. But you also had mass unemployment and Keynesianism was about using the state to control the levers of the economy to pump money where it was needed rather than go, oh, things have been devalued so we'll stop spending money. turned out to exacerbate the problem, Ben. It really did exacerbate the problem. And what this budget really demonstrates is that when you have low levels of unemployment, you have much greater capacity in the economy to do what you want to do, right? And we have very low levels of unemployment at the moment, 3.5% unemployment. Now, yes, there is a school of thought that says that puts inflationary pressure into the economy because too much money and prices go up, profiteer, all those things. But let me say this, right? The savings to the budget from high levels of employment 
around $17 billion. The additional tax revenue generated from high levels of employment and rising wages are in the tens of billions of dollars. Because more people with more jobs pay more tax. Yes. And they are productive within the economy as opposed to the neoliberal idea of keeping a reserve army of labour that is structuralising a pool of unemployed people to terrify working people out of making wage demands with the constant threat of unemployment means that you're actually forcing part of your labour force to be unproductive. Absolutely. So, again, I think this budget has been really, really cleverly constructed because there have been tweaks to deal with some of the cost of living problems. Again, we've had a decade of Morrisonism, right, which has been a weird kind of neoliberal fantasy land uh, where they've basically done all the things that they assume would put up inflation uh, plus burned a whole bunch of money on waste, just purely wasted, billions and billions of dollars. So at the same time, trashed the state's capacity to deliver services, trashed even when they outsource services, they trashed all the not-for-profit ones. Like they just trashed the giant. And I thought it would take a long time to be able to rebuild. Now, it's not all being rebuilt, and I'm not going to suggest for a moment this is a perfect budget. It is the best budget I could have imagined they would be able to come up with because what they've done is they've actually delivered a surplus. And people go, but being a surplus, why don't you, you know, you've talked before about, you know, surpluses aren't good in of themselves. That's correct. Surpluses are not in of themselves a good thing. But in the Keynesian model, when you have low levels of unemployment, when you have capacity to increase wages, when you have capacity to increase productive capacity, which labor has put investment in, in free TAFE, in direct grants for industry, the Energy Transition Authority, a great win, by the way, from the union movement. Shout out there. Don't forget to join a union, australianunions.org.au slash wow. That Energy Transition Authority is going to make a huge difference to communities where you've put money into raising wages of some of the lowest paid in aged care. Again, another great union win uh, where you've put in place uh, more support for childcare, where you've done some of these things, you you have to understand that the Reserve Bank will go, is this going to drive up prices? Because if this is going to drive up prices, then I'm going to then they're going to put up interest rates. And that's going to eat away at all those make all those savings, all those contributions government's going to make. So one of the ways that government counteracts that in a Keynesian model is to run a surplus because a surplus is effectively taking money out of the economy, right? It's basically saying that in this case, $4 billion, $4.7 billion, something like that, worth of taxes is going to be removed from circulation. It's going to be taken out of, you know, it's not going to be spent in shops. It's not going to be invested into machinery. It's not going to be, you know, put into venture capital, whatever. It's going to be taken out and it's going to be banked. And in this case, it's going to be used to pay down some government debt. Now, the Reserve Bank will see that and go, well, that's actually counterinflationary. That's a, that's a good thing. That puts downward pressure on interest rates. And that's one of the things that Keynes talked about is that when economic times are bad, and economic times here are defined as 
high levels of unemployment, right? High levels of unemployment, low levels of economic activity, low levels of transactions. People don't spend money. People don't engage each other in economic terms. They don't create their own markets, right? They don't create markets of goods and services for things they need. They're not having those interactions. When those economic conditions are in place, the government has to spend money, even have to borrow money. And the funny thing about the pandemic was that Morrisonism got confronted by this- By reality. By this reality, right? This stark reality that to save people's lives, we had to take extraordinary uh, action around lockdowns, around restricting, uh, you know, proximity. It limited the economic activity that was going on. Physically limited it. Yeah, physically limited it, right? So as a result of that, they actually, after a lot of pressure, again, from the union movement, I mean, I, I was around the union movement when this was happening, right? And people might remember that in the UK, Boris Johnson brought in a wage subsidy we were talking about that in Australia. Morrison was ruling it out, ruling it out, ruling it out. And then it became really obvious that the economy was going to collapse, that economic activity was going to completely disappear, and people were just not going to have any money. And he went, actually, we're going to have JobKeeper uh, and we're going to pump money into the economy. That was actually a really Keynesian thing to do. Borrow money, put it into the economy, stimulate. Keynesianism of desperation. Yeah. like, And look- like with anything. Say the word Scott Morrison and the dog growls. It's so cute. <laughs> like, like with anything, if you don't really believe it and you don't really understand it, you're probably not going to execute it very well. And, of course, Scott Morrison didn't execute it very well and the flow-on effects are we're living with right now. Same with Boris Johnson, same with Donald Trump, right? They don't understand Keynesianism. They didn't really believe in it. They've kind of had to go... Reality slapped us in the face. What do we do? Throw some money. Let's hope that works. And now we're kind of dealing with the lack of capacity uh, and productivity that was foregone because all they did was throw money. So the point I'm trying to make here is that a budget surplus is a good thing when unemployment is low. You want to have budget deficits when unemployment is high to bring unemployment down because that will create the economic activity that is required for all of us to be prosperous. Now, of course, after a decade of Morrisonism, after a decade of attacks on the social wage, after freezing job seeker payments, after just completely devastating social housing supply, there are other cost of living pressures at the same time. And that's been the challenge that Jim Chalmers has had to deal with which is, on the one hand, the, the pure Keynesian economic uh, theory and reality of that would be to bank a bigger surplus. Like if he was going to have pure Keynesian, he might have banked a $20 billion, $30 billion surplus, right? Instead, he's gone, there are genuine cost of living pressures in the economy and we need a package that is targeted. It's not going to solve every problem for everybody. And it's also not a carte blanche. No. Like there is an extraordinary article in The Australian today, and to save you the subscription fee, comrades, that found a couple, a middle-class couple, yeah. it's amazing, it is. who are both engineers. And we have friends who are engineers. Yeah. They live comfortably. Yeah, they're good people. Oh, yeah, they're good people. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, 
the the engineers in this particular I'm just saying that it's not engineering is a generally a fairly well paid profession and to have two people in the household who are both engineers suggests a higher than average household income and this couple featured in the Australian article were complaining there was nothing in the budget for them and it was you know oppression because this year they're planning their dream wedding and also buying an investment property. Yeah. And I was like, yeah, then you don't need help from the government. If you are like financially and economically set on the path of dream weddings and investment properties, your role in the struggle, fortunately, comrade, is finished. You are out of the struggle now. Yeah. You have moved away from Struggle Street. And it's just, it's so neoliberal. It's this conception of government as a cash dispensation machine that apportions out pockets of dough that you that you buy stuff with. And it's individualistic, like, and it's not based in any sense of what we owe to one another as a society and our collective robustness to provide shared infrastructure. Like really well-resourced public health care, for example, is good for everyone. Do you know why? Because rich and poor can all use it. And if we have robust public health care, and this is something we learn in the pandemic, yeah. you are only as healthy as the poorest person in your society because if you do not have universal accessible health care, germs travel, man. <laughs> they absolutely travel and pandemics become a thing because you know, the infections the infections don't care which class you're from. They care about what medical barriers they come up against. And that's what we mean. Like when we're talking about collectivism, that's why after the Second World War and during the Second World War, Western governments built these unbelievable welfare states and these robust democracies that said we have just had a pretty conclusive lesson in how societies only survive if we're all in this together. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And we've lost that over the past 40 years of neoliberalism. We've actually lost that conception. And that's why, like, this idea of two engineers going, but what's in it for us? We're planning a dream wedding. (laughs) I just can't. I just like the what. I mean, come on. Well, look. It it is it is a it is a step change, right? Like it is it is a step change in thinking, um, and and it's that whole uh, it's that whole thing where there are ten percent of people on one extreme and ten percent of people on the other extreme who hate this for very different reasons. Uh, there's some people who go, well, it doesn't go far enough to support some people, and there are some people who go, uh, it should have banked a bigger surplus. Uh, you can make both those arguments. You can make both those arguments, right? But the reality is what has been delivered is actually going to keep unemployment down. It's going to keep inflation down. It's going to deliver real wage increases. It's going to deliver programs that adjust our economic and industrial base to deal with climate change. It's going to deliver better healthcare outcomes. It's going to deliver better aged care outcomes. Uh, it's going to deliver fairer taxation by taxing multinationals more, by taxing the resources, our resources that get sold by private companies generally overseas so that we get some 
larger proportion of that. And again, people go, oh, it's not enough. Sure. Okay, fine. Take that as your base assumption that it's not full communism, right? <laughs> but, you know, got it. Lock that away. That is taken on notice. But what it is is a step change from Morrisonism, saying that people who are using superannuation to basically launder is a strong and particularly legalistic word, but to significantly minimise their tax on millions and millions of dollars to tax those people more appropriately is a good thing. Mm. It's a very good thing. And quite frankly, you know, it was a, there was a really beautiful uh, timeline thing that happened on one of the live blogs uh, and shout out to Labor for Farah, our uh, great, great uh, listeners and supporters. Great comrades. We love you, Labor for Farah. Uh, the age. I mean, those guys are absolutely at the coalface. This is the Labor branch in Susan yeah. Lay's seat. And they don't let up. Like yeah. they're staunch. They live in tiger country. They're the queens and kings of tiger country. They are constantly hunting tigers up there. And let me tell you, I reckon they put one right between the eyes today because the the age uh, live coverage of the coverage of the budget uh, at 8.25 a.m., Peter Dutton gives Labor a tick for budget balance. 8.41 a.m., Labor, quote, failed miserably on budget balance in medium term, says Angus Taylor. Oh, it's like it's a, it, that's how all over the place they are, right, because this budget is delivering. And, Van- and it also exists outside a framework that they understand. The Liberal Party, as you made the point before, yeah. they are not Keynesians. They are neoliberals. You know, they have had the past nine years and the influence of Howard and the way that, you know, the Liberal Party influence over the mass media, which was so significant during the era of Rudd Gillard Rudd. Yeah. Like that isn't the be all and end all now. It has lost its hegemonic power, the Murdoch press, to sort of set the terms of what people understand economic management to be. Yeah. And, of course, the Liberals are floundering because they fundamentally do not understand. Ideologically, they are opposed to how collective processes work. So let's let's talk about some of the specific uh, policy positions because I appreciate that, you know, people, th- these are good discussions and people need to understand how uh, the ideological frameworks and economic frameworks influence and shape you know, we talked. I talked in a recent uh, episode about uh, the economic environment, the economic framework, uh, the and economic outcomes. Right. So the economic environment is something the government wants to uh, shape with a budget. The economic framework that it brings to the, the budget. values, the actual moral values that you bring to government, and I, I understand it's very interesting, like to watch the way that. That there's a sort of a willful non-comprehension of of the Keynesian paradigm in many parts of the discourse, and not just from Tories, but also from people who probably think they're on the left, but manage to say a lot of very neoliberal things. Yeah, and I understand why that exists because we've had forty years of being told there was literally a book published called "The End of History" yeah. by Francis Fukuyama, which came out in the nineteen nineties and said, "No, no, neoliberalism is one. It is the absolute ultimate superior 
conception of all humanity and it's a dumb I mean it's hilarious he's since apologized I'd like to point yeah. out Francis Fukuyama a man who's eaten a sandwich of a particular flavor of a size in front of history that most people frankly would not have the courage to do so you do get a point there Francis but when I was at university we were told yeah. that because the Cold War had ended and Sovietism had failed that it was all over in neoliberalism as one so I get that people are not familiar with this way of thinking yeah. Like, I do understand that. But let's get back to a very basic analysis of values. Do you believe we're all in this together? Do you believe that sharing is good? Do you understand that a, an institution is worth more than money? Yeah. Like, yeah. If, you, if you look at your house and, and go, well, I've got a roof over my head. Whether you own it or not, what's more important that you have a roof over your head or a couple of candy bars? Like that's how we think about collective processes and institutional building and shared wealth and shared prosperity. It is absolutely economically viable. And the great triumph of this budget is that it is economically viable. They are proving that social wages actually deliver like an equalisation and improvement in shared prosperity. Yeah, absolutely. And that's one of the really big, big things about this budget is that it does that $4 billion and, you know, um, Stephen Kukulis, uh, you know, the kook on uh, Twitter was like, yeah, it's a really narrow uh, budget surplus. And Alan Collar was like, you know, it's a sort of meaningless budget surplus, but at the same time it also demonstrates how you can walk the line and actually deliver these things and really um, be responsible in your economic management. And then I want to talk about some of the actual measures in the budget because the measures themselves go to those values. They, you know, how those uh, measures are going to be implemented, what they mean, and how they will actually impact people's lives. And I want to start. Uh, I want to start with healthcare because there is three point five billion dollars uh, to triple uh, the amount of bulk billing that's happening. Eight new Medicare urgent care clinics are going to be established. They're going to be open for longer. They have no out-of-pocket costs. That means it's going to be 58 around the country. These are these urgent care clinics are often, uh, usually I should say, near hospital emergency rooms. Uh, they they provide an alternative to hospital emergency rooms. We've all been to a hospital emergency room where somebody's sitting there, and realistically, they're there because they're afraid of having to pay a doctor's bill somewhere. Uh, and and if they could just get into or may not be able to get an appointment or all kinds of things all kinds of things. Whereas if they just were able to access one of these urgent care clinics, they would be fine, right? Well, not necessarily fine, but they would get this, the care they need. So fifty eight of these are going to be opened up. Um, there's also going to be coordination between healthcare on telehealth, digitization of records increasing Medicare rebates for consultations that go for longer than 60 minutes so that doctors are not being driven by this idea that you've got to have a new patient every eight minutes because we know the Medicare rebate hadn't gone up for a long, long time. It meant the doctors were locked into this neoliberal model of the more patients we see, the more capacity we have to pay our own bills. You know, not every doctor is a multimillionaire. You don't, you know, you don't need to be a genius to figure that out. Some of them work in very long hours this takes some of that pressure off the healthcare system and says, if somebody needs a longer consultation, help them feel better. Because we know that when people feel better, they're able to be more productive. We know this partly because we also know that there's been tweaks to the way 
say job seeker works. So older workers, older work, you're far more likely to incur uh, or have incurred a disability once you get over the age of 55, even higher again once you get over the age of 65. That's why for a long time there's been a step up increase in job seeker for people over 60. The government has said we recognize actually that once you're over 55, long-term unemployed, uh, you're also more likely to incur not necessarily a, a debilitating disability, but you're more likely to incur something that limits your capacity to work. So there's a step up there. Again, same with single parents. They've identified you know, something that we've known for a long time. Not the proudest moment in labour history when Julia Gillard... No, and something I condemned at the time, and you can look up my article in The Guardian about the treatment of single mothers by labour in that budget where they decided to restrict income support to parents once their kids were over eight years old. Now, Labor, of course, has rectified or begun the process of rectification uh, by lifting that back up to 14. Again, people go, oh, it should be 16. These are the first budget of a first-term federal Labor government after a decade of Morrisonism. These are huge steps. This is also happening at a time when we were predicting and projected to have hundreds of billions of dollars of deficit. So these are big, big uh, improvements. And I want to just focus on the word productivity because, again, it's a word that neoliberals have tried to change the meaning of in that, you know, making sure that productivity is only seen within a capitalist profiteering framework. Yeah. Productivity is what we owe to each other, how much work we are able to do for the rest of the collective society that we live in. You know, productivity to me, I mean, I am mostly, this might be a surprise to people, mostly employed as a theatre maker. That is still the majority of my income. And my productivity is about creating entertainment products in this country through the state-funded theatre system because it's very difficult to make money in a commercial environment in a continent shaped like Australia. I have to say I saw ads for a new, uh, new revival of the Rocky Horror Picture Show on a bus the other day and I was like, Really? They're bringing that back to the stage again? Like, no disrespect. I love love that show. And I know people do. Remember when I made you dance in front of the camera when we went (laughs) to where Richard O'Brien came up with Rocky Horror in Hamilton, New Zealand, which is my father's hometown, by the way? And obviously people love it. Otherwise, it wouldn't be constantly being revived. But I just went... Right, okay, fair enough. Like That's partly why it's so hard to get original work out. Well, yeah, this is the thing because, you know, entertain- People like things that are familiar. Yeah, people do like things that are familiar and that they know are entertaining. We seek out entertainment products yeah. in order to give us, you know, the space to be less miserable with the rest of our lives. But productivity is about, you know, having the capacity to work hard and make good things. And that doesn't have to exist within, you know, a capitalist profiteering mindset. There are lots of activities that go on in this country that are about joy and socialisation and engagement and creating spaces where people are enriched or supported or cared for or all of those things. Like let's think more broadly, who is the largest single employer in this country, Ben? It's governments. It's governments. And what we get to do, what we get to make, what we get to experience is actually determined by government policy. Well, can I just say too, Van, one of the things that I think is really great about this budget that, you know, the neoliberal framework would say is a waste um, is that the the Labor government is going to employ 
uh, 10,000 more um, public servants, public sector workers. I literally sang when I heard this and, news. And and the reason I bring this up is because uh, a big a big chunk of those, about a thousand of them, are going to go into defence. Now people are, oh Ben, you know we spend so much money in defence. These are public sector workers in defence. This is not people. These are not uniformed defence personnel. That's a separate thing. And to be honest with you, I haven't got the numbers on that, and I'm not getting into the numbers on that today. The reason why I bring this up is because services for veterans, right, and the backlog of claims for support, $64.1 million is going to be invested in this. You can expect to see some of those public servants helping veterans. These are people who have served our country actually access health care, access housing, access employment support, you know, uh, access um you know, thing, things like uh, mental health interventions that, quite frankly, save lives. You know, these are this is an investment in our community and an investment in the people who have defended our Commonwealth and our community. You know, I get very, I get really annoyed about conservatives trying to hijack uh, the concept of uh, our defence and what it means to be Australian, what it means to wear the uniform. My other mum, Kim, wore the uniform. You know, she was in the army, in a, the Australian army. And it is really just awful to see conservatives who are more than happy to fly the flag on Anzac Day, which wasn't that long ago, more than happy to pour money. Or, you know, steal somebody else's wreath and try to put it on a yeah. uh, Anzac statue. Tim Wilson, if you're listening, you are weird. Yeah, yeah. you know, put money into... It's over. You're not in Parliament <laughs> anymore. Put more money into marble for the War Memorial or whatever and then effectively abandon the actual, uh, you know, the men and women of who wear the uniform and do the work and expose themselves to danger and risk uh, and trauma and just sort of go, oh, well, thanks for that, and here's a medal and off you go. Like these are investments in productivity. These are investments in people. You know, when we talk about fee-free TAFE, you know, these are, again, these are investments in people. These are things that will fundamentally change people's lives. It gives them more capacity to interact, not just socially, but interact in the economy. To make and give. Yeah, 300,000 more fee-free uh, fee TAFE places. I don't know why I find that so hard to say. Fee-free TAFE places? Yeah, thank you. you didn't go to drama school because <laughs> you got an MBA instead, whereas I. You know, like there are things in here about uh, productivity around even small business, you know, People go, oh, well, you're unionists. You mustn't like small business. Some of my best friends are small businesses. You're a small business. I am a small business. I'm a small business. We are small businesses. It is possible to have a mixed economy where small business, uh, large business, unions and governments all interact for the benefit of each other and the community because they are all part of the community. Socialist. Uh, you know, I just it's, guilty as charged. Exactly. So a twenty thousand dollars instant asset write-off. So that's and that's again targeted to small business, unlike the Morrison era, which defined a small business as any business with a turnover of less than five billion dollars. That's nine zeros, and the write-off was, you know, I, I can't remember if it was in the millions or the hundreds of thousands. Right. It's all just like a blur of awful, really. The Morrison era, yeah, isn't it? Yeah, but again, like. 
you're going to see people have weird reactions to this stuff. So news.com was like, tradies, to find it harder to write off the cost of a ute. It's like, yeah, to write off the full cost of an entire brand new ute in the first year of ownership, that's a lot to write off because actually that ute's probably got three years at least of life in it. So maybe you could write off 20,000 the first year and 20,000 the next year and 20,000 the year after that. That'd write off most of your ute and you might even get five years out of it and then sell it and get a trade in and get some more money. Like there are, there are things here where the Keynesian approach is to look at the reality of how the economy is working. And that's why, that's why Jim Chalmers has, in my view, not fully adopted what some people have said he should have done, which is increased the surplus more, decreased social spending. In fact, I expect to see Peter Dutton come out full guns blazing on Thursday, by the way. After he has a close friend explain his own ideological position to him. And I expect that he will absolutely trash all of and any sense of increase in, in terms of cash payments in the social wage. So that means the things for single parents. That means the things for older workers who are looking for work. That means the modest increase in job seeker for all uh, job seekers. That means the 15% increase in rent assistance. He will, the rumor is he will oppose all of those things and he may well oppose them in the parliament, which means the Greens will have to make a decision in the Senate whether they support those things going through. So there are some politics to be played out here, Van. I'm really worried about housing. Can I put that on the table now? Yeah. I have shared a video on my Facebook page and on my Twitter of Senator Penny Wong, who is usually a fairly controlled presence. I think we all know that. Yeah. The excellent foreign minister, absolutely cutting sick at the Greens for their alliance with the Liberals to block uh, affordable housing spending and what Labor are trying to do because Labor are trying to increase uh, the stock of housing because we know one of the centres of inflation is, of course, property. Yep. We know that the Liberals quite deliberately did not increase housing stock yeah. over their time because so much of their base was wrapped up in um, concentrating wealth and arbitraging wealth in Australia's property market around the haves and the have-nots. And the single biggest offer for young Australians and for families that's on the table in terms of transformational generational opportunity is a package of housing measures that incorporate not only public housing for people without housing but also social housing, integrated housing, targeting different groups of people like what's happening around the the stadium build in Tasmania that far too many people don't understand has a housing component. Like that stadium is a precinct development where they worked with First Nations groups, veterans, and also critical healthcare workers to provide key worker housing for health workers that Tasmanians desperately need. And all of these different housing opportunities that is what social housing is. It's going, who needs housing? Who needs housing where? Who? Can, what jobs do we need that we can't get because people who do those jobs cannot afford to live here? And affordable housing for people who are just trying to get on the property ladder to have some kind of um, to have some kind of purchase within, you know, the real estate mm-hmm. system, to have somewhere to live, all of these things. 
And I'm terrified the Greens are going to block this because this is these are the moves they've been making. We know that the member for Griffith, who is now a Green, he personally has been campaigning against yeah. the building of 1,300 new housing units in in a city like like the yeah. the yeah. seat of Griffith is on the south bank of Brisbane, part of the city, like to prevent people from moving into what should be a high-density neighbourhood. Mm. Instead, we should have a bigger park than the park we've got already, how lovely. And we also know that communities like the one you and I live in, if you outsource public and affordable housing to underdeveloped regional areas, it costs the government four times as much in terms of infrastructure investment to ensure the people who get shunted out here have enough healthcare, have enough homes, have enough transport links. And I am terrified and I know from the speech that Penny Wong gave, which was just pure rage, that there's genuine concern that the Greens, to keep their own neighbourhoods pure, will block legislation to allow high-density and other forms of public, social and affordable housing to be built in the areas that they'd like to keep leafy. Well, I think it's, I mean, I think it's outrageous. I mean, I tweeted about it today as well, that there was some Greens councillor from uh, one of the Melbourne councils talking about how many vacant houses there were. And it, it just shows, again, that lack of reality check that th- th- many of those vacancies are um, their holiday houses. And I don't mean by holiday houses, privately owned holiday houses. I mean holiday accommodation in beachside towns or in snowfields or whatever it might be uh, that are hundreds and hundreds of kilometres away from where people need to live. There is a need for place-based employment when it comes to things like healthcare, teaching, sanitation, right? And to say to those workers, you will have to commute up to four hours a day in order to do that work that we require you to come and do in our suburbs, but we will not facilitate you being able to live here because it will diminish the property value of our homes or it will somehow or another disrupt the political equilibrium that the decision makers are benefiting from is classist, it is wrong, and it fundamentally has to be taken apart. And shout out to Laurie Patton, uh, who's the uh, um, an economist online, who engaged with me in this discussion about how lots of people now can, you know, we can be decentralised and we can work from home. But when I pointed out that there is actually a need for place-based employment, he totally agreed. And and the reality is, as we can decentralise, but there are costs, as you point out, to that. And there are some things that cannot be decentralised. So this idea that the Greens at a federal level are going to block policy position and at a local level are going to block planning developments and lock working people out of living near where they have to work, where we need them to work, where we want them to work, where it's in the benefit of the Commonwealth that we all share for them to work, is classist and it's wrong and we have to find a way to overcome it. I have a quote that I want to read to you that came up at a public meeting, um, the member for Balmain in New South Wales, who is, of course, a Green. And this was recorded. Um, it, this was tweeted by an account that was at the meeting. Think about how it's going to affect you and your neighbourhood and your local amenity. This is about a yeah. affordable housing policy. Think about damage to character when they bring more people to the area. 
And it's like, I'll leave it up to you to decide who those undesirable people might be. But I think we can all have a wild guess. Yeah, I think it's I think it's pretty uh, I think it's pretty rank, uh, and I think it goes against the concepts that we've been talking about around building community, about using the power of the Commonwealth to increase people's connection to one another, to build collective prosperity. Uh, Van, I want to talk about a couple of uh, key uh, union responses. As you can imagine, the Community Public Sector Union, very pleased, 10,000 more public sector workers. Which cuts down on the absolute waste of outsourcing. $21 billion worth of contractors under the Morrison era, like just huge. That's more than a third of the total amount of public sector workers the Commonwealth had employed uh, were outsourced contracting. Many of those firms are sending money overseas. Uh, hopefully that the new 15% minimum tax on multinationals will reduce that anyway. Very excited about the new 15% tax rate on minimum tax rate on multinationals, given the fact that for a couple of years there were multinationals operating in this country who paid how much tax, Ben? Uh, zero. Absolutely none. <laughs> so, yeah, like a floor of 15% I think is awesome. You know, it's very funny, Ben, because um, I occasionally get a, get a bit from my well-meaning small L liberal friends Yeah. Um, going, you know, it's actually, it's, you know, Van, um, you know, it's okay to criticise the Labor Party. And I'm like, yeah, but it doesn't seem to be okay to celebrate when they do things I want them to do. It's like, do people understand? I actually believe this stuff. Like, I am a Keynesian and a democratic socialist and I want a big state and I want lots of public service jobs and I want full employment and I want universal health care and universal education and I want a robust, integrated, intersectional approach to the climate crisis and I am going to absolutely dance in the streets for every step that we get towards that. Yeah. Like, of course I'm going to criticise Labor, and I have a million times. Yeah. I'm on record. I've used my the column in the Guardian. The Australian has published your criticisms. Yeah, the Australian has published my criticisms of the Labor Party. But I do actually believe in these things because they're left-wing things. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, look, there's a lot of really good things here that the <sighs> union movement has because the Labor Party is part of the Labor movement and these Keynesian economic ideas, these uh, democratic socialist ideas uh, are fundamental to how we see the world. And, you know, we're talking here about getting uh, $4.1 billion to raise the wages of aged care workers. These are some of the most underpaid workers. Overwhelmingly women. Overwhelmingly women. Overwhelmingly women. Getting a pay rise they deserve. You know, we're talking about $720 million to fund staff increases uh, and to reform uh, the NDIS. You know, one of the great travesties of the Abbott era in particular, but was continued on under Morrisonism when he was Treasurer and then Prime Minister, was the artificial staffing cap in the National Disability Insurance Agency, which allowed the proliferation of cowboys Sham contractors, gangsters, gangsters, all the thing, all the terrible things we've seen, right? And and allowed that noise to start to drown out the real tangible benefits of what was great Labor Party policy developed with and by people in the disability community 
to improve their participation in our Commonwealth um, and actually have uh, long-lasting economic benefits beyond just those individuals, but to the broader community. We know because per capita has done that research that for every dollar invested in the NDIS that is used effectively and efficiently, there is a $2.25 economic return to the Commonwealth. That's a huge, huge upside. If you went to any any investment house in the world and said, we're going to deliver you a 225% return, they would be throwing buckets of cash at you. Instead, what did the Morrison government do? They allowed the system to become what it is today where there is- Bloated and exploited. Massive inequities and, and it really does need that money to fix it and make it the insurance scheme that it's supposed to be to facilitate- Purple. One of the little things that came up, Van, and I want to give a shout out here to the Australian Education Union. You know, again, this Mor- this Morrisonism era of pretending to be doing things to pretend that they were putting record funding into education, uh, putting aside the per capita element of it in terms of cost per student, putting aside the needs based element of it, putting in an artificial cap. Again, they love an artificial cap. Uh, into the education system. Well, this budget breaks that cap. The Northern Territory, there's a $40 million uh, investment to help students, some of the most disadvantaged students in the country who need the resources. It's a needs-based model that says, actually, the artificial cap around how much the Commonwealth will put in, we're doing away with that. We're focusing on the needs of the community what is in the best interests of the whole collective that we are as a Commonwealth, and we're taking real action. It's a small, it's a drop in the bucket. I get that. It's a drop in the ocean when it comes to what's needed, but it shows a commitment to doing away with Morrisonism. It shows a commitment to doing what's needed for our Commonwealth. The other thing I'm really excited about, Ben, is that there is these are framework changes and decisions that are being made with a democratic mandate. Yeah, absolutely. There is no, like, popular pushback to this budget at all. It has not manifested. There are not mass demonstrations. No. There are not mass mobilisations. There are not, you know, swing voters going on TV going, oh, I don't know about this, you know, which is what we would expect to happen if it was an unpopular budget. As a person who organised demonstrations against Abbott's budget and through the March in March movement and the bust the budget movement that came out of it, I'm very aware of what mass mobilisations against budgets look like and that has not happened here because across the spectrum of political belief in this country, and this is what building an electoral coalition of support Mm. gets you, Mm. it gets you progress which is inarguable, which is supported, that the people want and feel invested in and represented by. And that's actually what's really exciting about this budget. Yeah, absolutely. I couldn't agree more. You know, there's some good stuff in here too uh, around the arts van, uh, $112 over four years to attract investment from large budget screen productions and provide domestic employment and training opportunities by increasing increasing the location offset rebate to 30%. That's doubling it from 15% now. 
uh, and increasing the minimum qualifying Australian production expenditure thresholds to $20 million for feature films and $1.5 million per hour for television series. That will help, obviously, uh, increase the amount of Australian content. These are really positive uh, announcements for the arts uh, and the communities. They're there are words I haven't heard in a long time. Positive announcements for the arts. Wow. There's five. What a hypnotic spell that is. $590 million for domestic violence services. Uh, yeah, like half a billion dollars. Yeah, half a billion half a dollars. Bi- more than half a billion dollars. What's the difference between half a million dollars and half a billion dollars? About half a billion dollars, right? Like, yeah. Yeah. Um, it's a huge, huge improvement. Like these are, again, building that social safety net, building the structures that wrap around, that give people capacity, that give communities capacity. Uh, there has been uh, some savings uh, in the budget and they are mostly around the things that, quite frankly, were boondoggles. They were the paper-based announcements. They were infrastructure projects that had no budget Bridges to nowhere. Yeah, literally, literally in some cases, bridges to nowhere. It's a phenomenal set of outcomes. Talk here a little bit about uh, what they're doing around uh, trying to reduce not just energy bills, but improve energy efficiency, a billion dollars in low-cost lines for double glazing, solar panels, other improvements to keep homes uh, cool in summer and warm in winter, uh, that price relief uh, package in electricity, that's $3 billion, that's $500. And it's not for everybody. Like, let me be really clear about this, and I support this, right? There are things that, you know, people don't need and shouldn't get. And if you're on a double income that's in the 200, you know, lots of money, you don't, you're not doing it tough. There are people who are really doing it tough and there are people who are going to get this $500 rebate or discount off their power bill, which is twice what Labor said they would deliver in the election, by the way. It's double that amount. Uh, who are, it's going to be, it's going to change like three months, four months of their life, uh, huge, huge improvement, um, and a $4 billion investment in Australia's potential as a renewable energy superpower to seize the industrial and economic opportunity from being a net zero economy. That And that Just Transition Authority, uh, I'm just so amazingly proud of the work that the union movement has done on that, that unions from right across uh, the the working class came together to make that a real priority because there are workers in not just immediately affected high emissions uh, industries, but we have seen what happens when those industries close and there is no transition. It's workers in healthcare, it's workers in education, it's workers in retail, hospitality, uh, tourism, transport, all get affected, whole communities get affected. And I think that understanding that the Australian Union movement was able to bring into the discussion with members, with communities and with government to have this thing set up, to be budgeted for, to have the resources to go, we're going to tackle this because it's in our collective interest to do so. It will make us all better off. I'm just incredibly, um, I, I look back at my time and my involvement in the union movement and and think about just uh, the small contributions that I was able to make to some of those discussions. 
which pale in comparison to some of the work done by people like Sharon Burrow on an international level, Michelle O'Neill here, uh, uh, Jed Carney, of course, who was president of the ACTU, now uh, a minister in the Labor government, uh, people like Michael Wright at the ETU, uh, obviously the Australian Manufacturing Workers Union, uh, our, our good friends there, um, uh, just so many uh, important contributions over the course of time. And I, I want to give a shout out to all. I, I wish I could shout them all out, but there's just so many. Uh, and of course, you know, at the same time, Van, we've got the reactions, right? Some of the reactions are pretty interesting. Uh, and we'll, we'll finish up on this before we move to the other good news, um, which is still budget news, but it's other good news. You know, you've got the AMA going, this is great, fantastic. The nurses union going, great, fantastic. Um, the health and community services and health services unions going, this is all great, fantastic. Pharmacy Guild, dead opposed. Pharmacy Guild <laughs> running a campaign, trying to convince people that they shouldn't have cheaper medicines, that it's somehow going to be bad for them. Uh, Peter Dutton already saying they should have banked uh, more into the surplus and taking it from the most vulnerable. Again, getting that balance wrong, in my view. Uh, and that's it, really. That's it. You know, you've got the BCA uh, and uh, the ACTU standing together today saying, actually, there's a lot in here for business. There's a lot in here for workers. This is actually a really balanced way of doing the budget. We kind of have a lot we agree on here. This is, this is like, Good. Maybe some of these conversations we've been having over the last year, like where we've been in the same room, were worthwhile. Maybe that's a good thing. Maybe that's maybe that's why people should join their union. Go to AustralianUnions.org.au slash wow and and be part of that. Be part of that conversation. You know, if you're listening to this podcast, share it with other people. Have the conversations. Understand what neo-Keynesianism is. Because for the next three years, I reckon that's what we're going to have. And hopefully, hopefully, Van. We have 30 years of it and not only unstitch 40 years of neoliberalism, but if we can do this much in one year, imagine what we can do in 10. And this is the thing, like we are a democracy and the mechanism that gets people what they want is democratic movement, building broad-based electoral coalitions around majoritarian values and being able to articulate those values and bring people to them and make an argument that it's in a collective majority interest interest for us to do a certain thing. You know, that's how this works. And this is why unions are really important because they're representative organisations yeah. that represent large chunks of people not all of whom are hegemonised around a particular idea. No. You know, union memberships are diverse, but they create a focal point for organising, articulating, you know, understanding, building a sense of collective purpose that then has conversations with representatives of other communities and is part of a broader democratic conversation. Just on the democratic conversation, very quickly before we go to that good news, I do want to point out that this budget also includes uh, money uh, for the referendum, obviously, you would expect that. The referendum uh, bills will pass Parliament in the coming weeks. Uh, there's also uh, money in there, uh, $250 million for a plan for Central Australia, uh, $155 million in funding, $50 million over four years for infrastructure, $40 million over two years for education and school attendance, uh, 
there's money uh, as well for the closing the gap strategy. That's nearly half a billion dollars, $492 million over five years, including money for water security plan for remote First Nations communities. Of course, we know water supply is going to be one of the first things that is under pressure uh, with climate change. Uh, remote housing, $117 million for the Northern Territory, uh, nearly $100 million for a three-year jobs program, uh, which replaces the abolished community development program, which was not a community development program. Let's be really clear about this. You're no, not it wasn't remotely a community development program. And a shout-out to all of our um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander uh, listeners, comrades, friends, who campaigned to get a proper funded jobs program rather than what was an exploitative, uh, unsafe program. That's what it was. It was an exploitative, unsafe program, that old uh, community development program. Uh, And, of course, uh, not just money for the referendum, uh, but money as well for local uh, voice groups to be established uh, and to... uh, so $20 million to progress regional voice arrangements that will be expected to feed into a national body of some kind. Uh, and also, and this this might be um, considered a little sad, but it's, it is, again, that realism of Keynesianism to understand what actually happens in communities and deal with it and tackle it, and that is that there is uh, some money set aside uh, just over $10 million uh, for First Nations people during the period of the referendum for mental health programs because we know that having gone through, you and I having gone through and some very close friends and family obviously going through the uh, marriage equality plebiscite. Um, Your parents. My parents. My parents, <laughs> yeah, having gone through that, that it can be really difficult and really rough. And um our First Nations uh, comrades who are going through this are going to have, there are going to be people who are going to say and do awful things, uh, and we hope that's a minimum. We always hope that's a minimum. We want to see the better nature of Australians come through. Uh, But when that happens, it's good to know that there will be supports put in place. Again, that Keynesian approach, how do we support each other? How do we build a process? How do we build institutions? How do we build... Uh, policies and programs that help support people to be their most productive, to be the the best that they can be, to make the biggest contribution they can make in their own lives and the lives of other people and in their community, and and to see the government go, we recognise this is this is a this is a risk, this is a problem that we need to wrap around and make sure people are supported and safe during that process. And, of course, as always, we urge people to vote yes at the referendum. There's no question about that. Ben is wearing his yes shirt at the moment and it is very cute. Yeah, and I just... And a pilot at the airport asked him about his T-shirt, which is really exciting. Yeah, white male age somewhere between 45 and 55. So that's a good demographic to be going, hey, good T-shirt. Always be campaigning, baby. Always Always be be campaigning. campaigning. Look, speaking of always campaigning, one of the things that I know environmental activists in this country have wanted for a long time- He's pointing at me. (laughs) Is an independent environmental protection agency. And now, Van, under this budget, we're going to have one. It's great. (laughs) It's just great. 
It just means there's going to be an independent authority of experts. And we all know I heart experts, so into expertise. I generally think the decision should be guided by the people who know the most about the subject that is the under consideration. It's, I mean, it's, whoa, out there. <laughs> Certainly not something you got under Morrisonism. Uh, and the idea that that is going to be a reality in this country is amazing. And let's pair that with the fact that the government are establishing a just transition authority. Yeah. Like these are powerful mechanisms for supercharging our response to the climate threat because a just transition authority means that unions, working people, their communities are brought into the discussion about what affects them so they don't have to be targeted by scare campaigns or smear campaigns or propaganda that they can actually exercise a stake in the decisions that will transition us from fossil fuel industries into a net zero future, which is great. Now let's pair that with an environmental protection authority that considers, like genuinely considers environmental impacts that oversees, you know, like with a fundamental recognition that the environment is a good that exists, not a resource that to be, that, exploited. To be exploited. Now that's a paradigm shift. That is a paradigm shift. You know, very, very- obviously we've got a long way to go. But you can't go anywhere unless you've got the vehicle to travel. That's right. Well, $121 million for the vehicle to travel. That's the EPA. $262 million to protect national parks. Uh, waterway cleanup, $118 million. 490, 439, sorry, $439 million, uh, for programs to better protect and manage uh, our world heritage properties, including the Ramsar wetlands and conserving threatened species and habitats. $197 million to deliver water to local communities. Uh, we've talked about that one uh, already. Uh, and that waterway project, I think I might, did I mention that? $118 million for um, planting native species on creeks, improving water quality more generally as well. I mean, these are these are. I just can't imagine under Morrisonism they would ever bother to plant native trees to improve the quality of waterways. So it's a f- phenomenally good piece of news. Um, it's an environmental good piece of news. There's so much good news in this episode of the week on Wednesday. They say that for every piece of negativity you receive, you need three pieces of positivity to balance it out. Well, quite frankly, I think we've just delivered on your behalf dozens and dozens of pieces of positivity. And, of course, we do this and are able to do this and able to have smashed past 850,000 downloads because we have supporters who continue to contribute to make sure that these messages, these discussions get heard by more and more people all the time. We had a record number of downloads in the month of April. We are on track to match that again in the month of May. Unbelievable, Van. And it's because of people who share, like, this will always be free to listen to, always be free to download. But for those who can and those who are willing to make a contribution financially, you can go to buymeacoffee.com slash week on Wednesday. You can give once, you can make a buck a week contribution, or if you want to have your name read aloud by the great Van Batum, you can make a $10 a month contribution and become an Extend the Reach supporter or a $20 a month contribution and become a Cadre supporter. What a, however you support our podcast, even if it's just like and sharing, we really appreciate that. And of course, Van, you've got the list of supporters to read out. I mean, I do. I do have it. And it's right here. Woohoo! You ready? Go for it. 
Shane Horsfall, Rebecca Fanning for Longman, Re- Matthew Hadley, Colum Kelly, Ali Vance, Mary M, Love Your Work, Yeet Yeti, Ed Antony, Belden, Claire, Jason Dallas, Camille, Akiva Boris, Kristen Sakluna, Gabe Kramer, Stephen Aitken, Trish Corey, Greg Miller, Kathy Birch, Fiona McNeil, Giada, Jed Carney, Christine Cole, Tamara James, Bronwyn, Punch Drunk Veteran, at Jenny Forster 7, Andrew Pascoe, Cassandal Tui, Addison Official, Ian Hampson, no Twitter for me, Hannah Honda, Matt Bush, no relation, Richard Sands, I'm not on Twitter, Glenn, Robbie, Brett Daniels, Kylie Phillips, Linda Cartwright, at Leanne Shingles, I don't have Twitter, my name is Susan Myers, at Kerry Nash, 20, Billy 3 McCabe, Nerissa Simon, at Katagal, Lauren Ash and Banjo, Narunga Man, John Sharpen, Peter Bath, Aaron Rollins, Louise Watson, slash Red, White and Blue Lou, Joe Lockery, Steph, Karina Barley, at Jane C. Campbell and Leona Gibbons. And our extender reach supporters are... Lara, Stuart Munn, Blagoya, Matthew Case, Marky Mark at Vikram Bit, Adrian Valente, Mitz Ritza at Caradale 68, Frank Nehus, Erica Pizzuti, Joe Lapino, Rachel Fitzpatrick, Kerry, Arthur Pauline Bate, Helen at Robert Notfield 1, Michael Wales, Sanjay Kelly, Darina, Kathy Hay, Donald Vaughan, Damien Marley, Michelle Norton, Rodney Slap, Cameron, Tridragon, Daniel at Crazy Kezza, John DeHunt at Ange Fennell, Anna Uren at Ross Kenner 888, Kathy Burgess, Kirsten Black, Melanie Denning, Jodie A, not on Twitter, 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 um, Penelope Judge, Jane Holloway, Spirit of Anger and Hope, at K Not, at Didham, Sharon Kelly, Beck and Lola, Richard Graver, Someone, Vita W, Nandita, Hannah, Maury Louise, Hawker, Megan, Weckett, Graham, Oxley, Beck Cody, Tracy Lucas, Sandy Honan, at Galvez, Greg Martin, Trainer, Amy Fawcett, not on Twitter, Sarah Elianen, Andrew Ivor Spillett, Andrew Bryan, Peter O.C., Linda, Sam Hadid, Kip Patterson, Lizette, Twizzle, Bunkham Basher, and Katie Ward. <sighs> A huge, Huge congratulations. We love you all. To all of you. You have made this podcast one of the most successful political podcasts in Australia on the Apple podcast charts, which just continually blows my mind. We have uh, gone into really just budget mode for this episode. We're getting so close to a million downloads. <laughs> it's- I think we should have a party. If you think Ben and I should have a fun party when we hit a million downloads, please tell Ben. Uh, I look forward to receiving your many emails. Uh, look, we will do a weekend wrap on Sunday. Of course, there's so much else that's gone on. We just haven't had time to cover today. We will get to many other stories on Sunday as they develop. Until then, love you, Vanny. I love you too. Bye. Bye.